evening. If you have your Bibles, we are starting the book of Esther tonight. If you need a Bible, Greg will get you one if you raise your hand. I think you probably all brought your Bibles tonight, but if you need one, Greg will bring one to you. We're going to look at Esther chapter 1 and 2 this evening. got really warm in here, then it got really cool in here, so now we're trying to get it just right in here, so hopefully we'll be okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this sweet time of worship that we've had. Lord, I think of uh, just singing the, the song, Show Us Your Glory, Lord, just wanting you to be glorified in our lives and, and lifted up high in our lives, Lord, and to to just be the focus of our hearts. And, and we praise you and we do worship you as, as we've worshipped you in song. And now we just want to continue to worship you through the study of your word, God. We ask that you would bless our time together, give us understanding, not just information, but application in our lives, Lord. We ask your blessing upon our children downstairs, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the teachers that have been, uh, just volunteered to, to bless those kids downstairs. And thank you for just all the ministries here at the church and the, just the opportunity that we have to gather together and to uh, be in your word tonight. So bless our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's, uh, it's very cool. I think it's, it's kind of a great time to study the book of, of Esther because the Jews just celebrated What's called the Feast of of, of Purim, you know, it's a celebration of what took place in the book of Esther. It celebrated the, the, you know, 14th of Hebrew of the month of Adar, late winter, early spring this year. It began Monday night, uh, just two nights ago, and and it continued until Tuesday night. Uh, And so really it it commemorates the uh, salvation of the Jewish people in the ancient Persian Empire from Haman's plot to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, infants, women and children in a single day. And uh, as we get through the book of Esther, we'll see all of that. It's kind of a preview, uh, you know, trailer uh, coming up. But, you know, the, the, the Feast of Purim, you know, even to this day, it's, there's this, this liveliness and fun. And, and uh, I mean, if there's a day to let loose and be Jewish, that's what they do. And, and uh, customary, actually, for adults, uh, children, but some even adults to dress up in costumes traditional uh, Purim food, Haman, uh, I think it's called Tashin, or also called Osnia Haman, literally translated to Haman's ears. My wife actually made this before. It's a, a three-cornered pastry bursting with poppy seeds and, and some sweet filling. And, and why Haman's ears? Well, the name led to the myth that the pastry celebrated the cutting off of the wicked man Haman's ears before he was hung. And so, uh, an interesting thing. Uh, on the day before uh, Purim, they... they Customary to fast, commemorating Esther's fasting and praying for God to save his people. So it's a great time to study the book of Esther. book is very unique in that it's one of the first things people notice when they, they read it through is that of all the 66 books of the Bible, it's the only one not to mention the Lord. That's not to say that the Lord isn't moving and working, but He can only be seen through the eyes of faith, watching Him work in the background, demonstrating His faithfulness by arranging strange coincidences and, and juggling circumstances to, to happen behind the scenes. 
The story stands uh, as a wonderful reminder of how God is often at work behind the scenes, working in un- unseen ways and events in our lives as well. Now, the first three chapters are sort of setting the background for the stage, revealing the ways by which God was moving behind the scenes years in advance to fulfill His purpose in the time to come. You know, the same is true in our lives. As God works in our lives and through our lives, sometimes the things that God is doing today really aren't for today. They're for five years from now or ten years from now or maybe twenty years from now down the road before we see what God had in mind. And then we say, well, now I get it. Now I know why we went through this. Now I know why we did this. God was just in control. And and while this is great, and you can see God's hand leading and guiding and overseeing the whole program. And it's exciting when the cycle comes around and we can look back and we can see the hand of God. Now, it's certainly hard when you're going through it and you start going, okay, where's God in this? What what is going on? Why is this happening? What's going on? But you see, Esther is one of those kinds of stories where God is laying out years in advance uh, for his purpose to be fulfilled at a strategic moment in history. Now, the setting of the story, of course, is Persia. The events of the book take place between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. There are five main characters in the story. There's a pagan king, Xerxes, a strong-minded queen, Vashti, a wicked officer named Haman, really an instrument of Satan to try and exterminate the Jewish race. There's an older Jewish man by the name of Mordecai, and there's a young Jewish orphan by the name of Hadassah or Esther. It's uncertain who wrote the book, uh, but many believe it could have been Mordecai or Ezra, even perhaps Nehemiah. With that said, let's dig in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, that this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Sudan, the citadel. Now, Ahasuerus is not the man's name, it's the title of the king of Persia. Many scholars believe that the king of Persia spoken of here is Xerxes. Uh, we read he's in Shushan, which is the capital of Persia. It's about 150 miles north of the tip of, of the Persian Gulf, modern-day Iran. His kingdom covered a vast area of many peoples and languages stretching, stretching eastward towards um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, southward to Saudi Arabia and North Africa. Now, if we've been studying... Uh, in Ezra, after the Jewish captivity, several thousand of the Jews returned to, to Israel when Cyrus, the previous king of Persia, decreed that they could return and rebuild their temple. Most of the Jews remained, though, where they had been the previous 70 years. Well, now in verse 3, Xerxes decides to throw a party. It says that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and, and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces before, being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days and all. Man, talk about lifestyle of the rich and famous. I mean, this is a banquet to end all banquets. 127 provinces in this kingdom. And out of each of these, he brought a delegation so that he had a president of probably one or 2,000 people for this banquet. Probably by today's standards, cost millions of dollars. This is just an over-the-top uh, you know, display of greatness of Xerxes with his purpose to reveal just, you know, his wealth and his luxury and the power of the Persian Empire. But this banquet was pagan from the beginning all the way to the end. Had all the ingredients of a pagan celebration, you know, the music, the food, the wild dancing, eating and drinking to excess. Look, look now verses 5 through 8. 
And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks on golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Verse 8 in the New Living Translation reads, By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. So just an open bar. Yeah, hey man, you guys want to drink as much as you want. You know, the king did, hey, the king didn't want to, I don't want to presume how much you should or shouldn't drink. You know, that's the worst kind of leadership. You know, especially of a king. Oh, I wouldn't dare to tell someone what's right or what's wrong. Or, you know, parents, that you've heard a parent saying that to the kids. Oh, find your own way in life. Experiment. You'll discover what's right for you. <laughs> Baloney. Fact is, getting drunk is wrong. It's a sin. No good ever comes from it. Proverbs 21 tells us, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it, it, it is not wise. That people in leadership, people in authority, should not be drinking at all. Proverbs 31.4 says, It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to, to desire strong drink. Jesus warned of the dangers of it in Luke 21.34. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dis- dissipation and drunkenness. Listen, when the king or, or any authority refuses to take a stand on right and wrong issues, it's usually a pretty good indication that they're guilty of the same thing. Now, this banquet was just for the men. It was serious business, and apparently they did not mix sex and business back then. In those days, the women were kept in separate quarters. But that's not to say that the women weren't taken care of. Look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the woman in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, the author now paints a contrast to the two parties going on. Verse 10 we read, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that is when he was totally plastered, when he was, you know, wiped out completely, he commanded, you know, these seven guys with weird names, Mahuman, Bistha, Harbana, Biktha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Now stop there for a moment. I know you want to read ahead. Don't read ahead. You'll spoil it. Here we have the king. He's under the influence of alcohol. He does something he never would have done had he been sober. Let me say this. It's really a sad thing when people drink and lose their sense of judgment. Oftentimes a person will do things under the influence of alcohol that they wouldn't normally do when they're sober. And the tragedy is that it robs a person of natural inhibitions and of good judgment and people end up hurt, people end up dead. Listen to Proverbs 23, 29-35 in the New Living Translation. Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the taprooms trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations and you will say crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed at sea, clinging to a swaying mast. And you will say, 
They hit me, but I didn't feel it. I didn't even know if it would, didn't even know it when they beat me up. When will I wake up so I can look for another drink? Miserable. Absolutely miserable. As Christians, we're told to stay away, stay far away. But now this king, he is drunk and he wants to show off his queen. Look at verse 11. He says, bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing a royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Now, there is a debate uh, concerning the phrase she was to be brought wearing her royal crown. Some think that, that the king was asking Vashti to come in wearing her crown with her face uncovered. And, and that would have been, in that culture, a scandalous thing to do. While others think, that he was actually asking her to come in just wearing her, her crown. That was it. <laughs> and just the crown. Uh, it would have been really scandalous and, and absolutely degrading. This king made three terrible mistakes. Number one, getting drunk was his first. Number two, comparing his wife's beauty to other women was the second. And number three, treating his wife like a trophy to be shown off was his third mistake. Man, these are, are dangerous mistakes, mistakes that men make all the time, and, and they all they are mistakes that often end in divorce and destruction. Drunkenness, you know, we've already talked about the foolishness of being intoxicated. Drinking destroys relationships, families, it destroys people. His second mistake, comparing his wife's beauty to others. That's a lie that, that the men in this world have been fed. Get, get the best looking wife you can, and then spend the rest of your life watching all the other ones who are pretty and regretting the one you have. I mean, that's, that's Satan's lie. We see it, though, it's taught in, in TV and billboards and movies and pornography. The fact is that God has created your wife to be exactly what you need. He has given her to you as a gift to fulfill you, to complete you, to be your perfect mate. So when you're dissatisfied with what God has given to you, that doesn't make God very happy at all. You're in trouble. You know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Someone once said, a watering eye will make you die. It's probably true. Number three, the, the king's third mistake was treating his wife like an object instead of a person. That's probably not surprising, but we see this a lot. The men treat their wives in a manner that if someone were treating their mother or daughters that way, they, would, they wouldn't tolerate it. Peter, in, in talking to the husband's, how they're to, to uh, treat their wives. He says, to grant their wives honor as the fellow heirs of the grace of life. And he says, if they don't, then your prayers are hindered. I, I like the song of Solomon. Solomon calls his wife, my sister, my bride, five times. She's a person. She's a Christian. She's a child of God first, and then she's your wife. Man, maybe you've made some of or all these mistakes. Drinking may have caused tension or strife in your marriage. Maybe you got that wandering eye and, and maybe you tried to get a handle on things, but you can't put that beer down. You're out of control. Here's the answer. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 Make sure your relationship with right is right with God and then your relationship with, with your wife will be absolutely loving and real also. But it's a choice. We, we, we all have that choice to make. Well, the queen perhaps might have felt like she didn't have a choice. The king's drunk and then calls her in to display her around like a piece of property. It's then that we read in verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Good for her. Good for her. What her husband asked her uh, uh, if it was not submission but sexual slavery. Listen, marriage does not give any man the right or license to fulfill his basest fantasies by using his wife as a sexual object. 
And let me say this again. What Queen Vashti had done was commendable. Refusing to allow herself to be treated this way showed so much courage. Yeah, we know as Christians, the Bible says in Colossians 3.18 that wives are to submit to your own husbands as fitting to the Lord. But sadly, when people talk about submission, some women picture, you know, Jabba the Hutt and Princess Leah and, and, and change to this bulky worm-like body. <laughs> Just disgusting. <laughs> it was for good reason, though. Because some men have treated their wives that way. And they take scripture and they, they force them, oh, man, you got to submit to me, woman. Yet that word for fitting means to take the proper action that is due another individual. A proper action that is always biblical. See, the, the, the wife, submission does not mean that the wife is to obey ungodly counsel. There is that important clause that, that the word says, submit as fitting in the Lord. That means if your husband would ask you to do something that, that is against the teaching of Scripture, you are in fact warned not to submit. And here... We read this brave queen, Vashti, refused to obey her husband. Her beauty was only meant for her husband and, 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 and her own, and it was not for open show among hundreds of half-drunk men. She stood up for what was right. It cost her disgrace and banishment. I can't help but admire this woman. She sacrificed all that glamour and wealth and all that stuff for the sake of personal dignity. She wouldn't be a sexual pawn to be shown off as a piece of property. Not, I mean, willing to sacrifice her crown for the sake of her character. Look at the last part of verse 12. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. <laughs> Listen, this king, he had messed up big time. He publicly calls for his wife, but she refuses to be humiliated. Now his response at this point could be repentance or rage. He could be going, man, I blew it. I shouldn't have been doing that. You know what? He chooses rage. His fourth mistake you know, making decisions in anger always leads to regret. Getting drunk was his first mistake. Comparing his wife's beauty to other women was his second. Treating his wife like a trophy to be shown off was his third. And number four was his rage. Now imagine the scene for a moment. The king says to his guests, I have a surprise for you. I want you to see my queen. She's going to stand before you with the royal crown on her head. She's very beautiful. She's going to come through those doors right any moment now, she's going to come right now. And then a few minutes pass, and then the, uh, the chamberlains whisper in the king's ear, she's not going to come. She won't come. Then he's got to get up and say, I'm sorry, gentlemen, but we will have to change the program this evening. Our main attraction did not arrive. The, the queen will not be here this evening. Now, what's the ramification of this? Well, his leadership skill would be now in question. How can he command an army if he can't command his woman? And so in verses 13 and 14, he calls for his top advisors for an emergency cabinet, meaning these men who, who knew the law and the times. And so the king asked him, look at verses 13 through 16. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, uh, Shethar, Amatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who had ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Herasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Herasuerus. 
Now, there are those commentators who suggest that uh, Memekan was having his own problems at home. That's why he's acting up this way and eager to, to, to just do something about her and something must be done to protect our homes because we can't have our women acting like this. Look at verses 17 to 22. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise her husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. Verse 18, this very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of this queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and that the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. It's just making more of a mess. Emergency cabinet meeting. Mem- Memekem, being the most vocal, comes up with a decision. Man, if you don't deal with this woman harshly, all these women, they're all going to revolt. They're all going to rebel. You know, and, you know, basically, uh, you know, the, every woman is going to dis- start disobeying their husbands. And they start to pre- perpetrate this lie that is, Really known today, get rid of your wife and find a better woman. That's America's philosophy today. You deserve better, you ought to dump him or dump her, get rid of them and then get someone good and God is someone better for you. All lies. All lies. Now God's word says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, sadly, verse 21, and the reply pleased the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Memekan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Vashti, you know, I think got her wish. She didn't want to come into the king's presence. Now he has ordered her not to come into his presence again. And the king feared what would happen if the women heard of the queen's insult, so he ordered that everyone knows about this new law that he has, and, and the king could not exercise power over his own wife and end up ordering all the women, you know, to must obey their husbands. But it's just a foolish decree. But think about this. As I said in the beginning, God is working sovereignly in the background. So that the king, he really isn't in charge here. I mean, the king of Persia, he's portrayed in the beginning of this chapter as this mighty lion of Persia, powerful, significant. He ends up drunk, threatened by his wife's resistance and scrambling for a way to stay in charge. That just rings true what Proverbs 21.1 tells us. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So when all is said and done, God is in control. He watches the antics of the proud and he laughs. At the end of the story, God wins. Because behind the scenes, God is preparing this woman named Esther for this big surprise. He's moving and pushing and rearranging events and changing minds. Until he brings out of even the most carnal and secular of settings a decision that will set in the perfect place this plan that God has. Just showing us God is in sovereign control, not only in the events of Esther's days, but in our events as, as well. You know, in the midst of things going on and circumstances, maybe you're baffled, wondering what you're going to do or even how you're going to go on. You can rest assured God is in control. God is sovereign. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose for what's going on. This brings us to chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, 
what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel, into the woman's quarters, under the custody of Hegai, Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. Yeah, that's it. The first queen doesn't work out, then I'll just get another queen. You know, again, a classic response to the world's uh, answer to relationships. You know, just be in as many relationships as you can until you find the one that, that, that you're going to look at, and you've got to play the field. Teenagers, you know, in, in the world today, they're instructed the same thing. It's an abomination to the Lord. Jesus put it this way in Mark 10, verse 6 through 8. But from the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. One man for one woman, one woman for one man. Yet when we follow the, the world's ways, there's always this trail of violated bodies and broken hearts and crushed spirits. But following God's way, there's purity, there's simplicity, there's stability. But again, we're dealing with a pagan king and a heathen nation. So obviously, the king likes this idea of bringing the young girls in, and they call for a you know, Miss Persia pageant with King Xerxes as a sole judge. And we read that this king thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, I gave you a clue who wins the contest. You guys know it's Esther. And so, but before we get to her, we're introduced to her cousin Mordecai. Look at verse five. And she said, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now understand, up until this point, the stage is still being set for what God is about to do. Again, there's this, this prideful heathen king. He had this party, banished his queen. Nothing spiritual is taking place yet in the palace, but God is about to move and work in a way that we can see God's sovereignty and providence in arranging these events so that at the proper time, you'll have someone to intervene on behalf of his people. So verse 5, we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai was taken captive probably at a young age in the second deportation of captives that left Jerusalem. Mordecai had a young cousin whose parents may have been slain when Nebuchadnezzar took the city, for there was many, many Jews killed at that time. But time passed, and now, and again, as I said, God has permitted his people to return to their own land, just as he prophesied to Isaiah. Some did, some stayed in Persia. They had made a life for themselves, decided to stay there. Mordecai was one of them. Now, he should have gone back to Jerusalem. But instead, he stayed in that group. And now, sovereignly, God will use this for good. But Mordecai really wasn't in the will of God. Don't, don't get me wrong. Mordecai was a godly Jewish man, very wise and very insightful, a man of great faith and integrity. Uh, and he's a man who's going to take on the role of a father to his cousin uh, Esther, but a, a role will have ramifications beyond what he could ever imagine. Now look at verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. You know, when the Bible calls someone lovely and beautiful, you can bet that she was lovely and beautiful. It's interesting that her Hebrew name, Hadassah, means myrtle, and her Persian name, Esther, means star. And it's interesting because the myrtle tree bears a flower that looks like a star. 
I like the, the comma of the two definitions because up to this point, God has indeed hidden a star in Persia for his people. Think about it. When Esther lost her mom and dad at the youngest, she might have thought her life was over. Yet, in reality, it had just begun. God would bring this godly relative Mordecai into her life to love her and care for her and raise her in the ways of the Lord. God has his hand on this little forgotten orphan. and He's going to do something huge in her life. But up to this point, Mordecai, I had no idea. Look at verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken into the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the woman. Now there are two important things to point out from this text. The beauty pageant wasn't voluntary. You know, it was a decree, a command that all unmarried young women deemed beautiful be brought to the palace. And number two, when it says that Esther was also taken to the king's palace, it means she was taken by force. It was against her will. She was a reluctant participant in this whole thing. And I bring that up because some Bible commentators like to paint this like a Cinderella story. You know, and Cinderella comes in and, you know, they got the glass slippers and and Mordecai and Esther are just conspiring together to advance Esther in a worldly fashion, using her good looks to get ahead. But that's not what's happening here. Esther is spotted for her beauty and is taken against her will, and all to, to Mordecai's dismay. Because, you see, they both know that if she's not chosen to be the next queen, there's a good chance that she's going to spend the rest of her life a part of the king's harem. So you can imagine, here is Mordecai, who's been taking care of this young girl. It must have been heartbroken to him. But you see, again, at this moment, Esther and Mordecai have no idea what God is doing. All they can do is trust God. Again, we may be in the same situation tonight, circumstances that are confusing. Not sure what God's doing or what's going on. Listen, just trust Him. God will, will see us through. So we read, all these beautiful girls are gathered from all 127 provinces to the palace. Josephus tells us there were about 400 girls. We read that as the ladies show up, they're placed into the care of Hegei, the custodian of the woman. He was one of the eunuchs who served in the palace. Uh, these eunuchs were men who had been castrated so that they would be faithful to fulfill their job. And, you know, in that situation, they'd have to, I guess. I can't imagine there, there are many boys who said, well, I want to grow up, I want to be a eunuch in the king's court. I don't think so. But you see, often kings wouldn't trust anyone else to be in charge of the harems or even to serve as attendants or treasures due to that fear. And so they would, uh, they would have these, uh, these eunuchs. Look at verse 9. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the woman. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Notice the phrase again in verse 9. She obtained his favor. A literal translation that is, she lifted up grace before his face. Isn't that an awesome expression? One worth our looking at. In other words, her countenance was grace magnified. I mean, understand what's happening here. I mean, Esther's taken against her will thrown into this beauty pageant with all these other girls, about 400 of them. The competition and the atmosphere is intense. It's cutthroat. It's got all the makings of a reality TV show. Yet, in the middle of all this, Esther, she's not bitter. She's not complaining. She's not kicking her feet. In fact, she does not even show to have a bad attitude at all. Nor does she go the other way. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't go, well, it's all about me. Of course I'm here. I, I should be here. 
Instead, she just models grace before this influential servant of the king. What a great trait to have. To be able to respond in grace when you're placed in in a difficult circumstance. Or to rest like Peter, you know, when Peter was thrown into prison and, and to be woken up by an angel to be set free. Or like Paul and Silas having been, you know, beaten for their faith and thrown into prison. They're singing praise songs to the Lord. So easy to get a woe is me attitude. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody cares. And you start complaining and moaning and grumpy. I think we've all been guilty of that. I know I have. Listen, God cares. And He desires when we face difficult times is to rest. Rest in His love. Rest in His care. And know that he's going to see us through. Esther modeled God's grace and God blessed her for it. Yet all that's going on without Mordecai knowing what's going on. That had to have been driving him crazy. Which it did. Look at verse 11. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. I mean, it's like a dad worried about his daughter. Man, I don't know what's going on in there. What's happening there? Man, man what's going on? Well, I understand having daughters, you know, as kids. She's pacing back and forth every single day just wanting to hear anything, something about Esther. Is she okay? She's been treated fairly. What's happening to her? It got us everything under control. Look at verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of the preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Wow. I like what J. Vernon McGee says here. May I say to you that if your wife takes a few hours in the beauty salon, you ought not to complain. These girls spent a whole year there. The first six months they went to the spa for reducing and oil treatments. Then the next six months they went to the perfumers. Gosh. Verse 13. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the woman, to the custody of Shags, Shags, this guy, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubine. She would not go into the king against again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the woman, advised, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Again, Esther obtained favor. In other words, grace was all over her. God's grace was causing people just to, to, just to have her stand out, people to like her. Bible tells us in Proverbs eleven sixteen, a gracious woman attains honor. Told in Psalm five twelve, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor; you will surround him as with a shield. I like Proverbs twelve two. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. As to obtain favor, it says, in the sight of all who saw her. Verse sixteen. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. You know, we make a lot over the Greek words for love. You know, there's so many different words for love in the Greek. There's a friendship love and the sexual love and, and, and different ones and so on. But here, the word for love, when we read that the king loved Esther, it's a Hebrew word for love, which is kind of like our English word for love. 
It can mean anything from, from friendship to sex to I love my wife to I love Krispy Kreme donuts. So there's no way to tell whether the king generally loved Esther with his heart or as the NIV says that the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. My opinion, this is my opinion, it's an, an old king, kind of reached the end of the road and is just looking for someone to meet his needs. And that's not the kind of love that God desires for us to have. This was more of the, of the three R's, as J. Vernon McGee, McGee again tells it. He says, at 20 it's romance, at 30 it's rent, but at 50 it's rheumatism. Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe this old king now, and, and he's, he's an old pagan king marrying this beautiful young girl, and, and, uh, and so he's, you know, he's just, uh, he loves this girl, and, and so once again the king wants to party. Look at verse 18. Then the king made a great feast the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. This girl, she's a, a remarkable person. Even now, maid queen, married to the king, she still takes instructions. She still honors the man that raised her. And I will say that I believe Mordecai is one of the the most outstanding men in scriptures as well. and, And he doesn't receive as much attention as he should. We'll see that he's a man of great integrity as well. Because as the chapter ends, we move from beauty to something really ugly. Look at the beginning of verse 21. In those days, what days? The days when everyone was feasting, everything was going well. While Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now what is Mordecai doing at the gate? Well, most of the commentaries say that Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate because Esther has her new position and, and, and his king queen has exalted him to this position in government. But I see a lot of problems with that. I don't see that here. The biggest one is Esther really doesn't have any authority to put anyone in any position. And number two, he's not the only one sitting at the king's gate. There are a lot of people there, including the king's servants. And the third reason is, throughout this book, Mordecai is anonymous. So how is he getting there? How is he at the gate? Again, this is the sovereignty of God in the book of Esther. Because we know that when Esther was first taken, Mordecai was walking back and forth in front of it every day to find out how she was doing. Now that she's queen, he's still at the gate for the same reason. I mean, it's this love and care for this, his adopted daughters. He's wanting to make sure everything is going just right for her. But here's where the sovereignty of God kicks in. Mordecai is just in the right place at the right time to overhear plans for an assassination attempt on the king. Look at verse 21 again. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The things are going great. For some reason, these guys, Big Than and Teresh, yeah, Big Than, these two guys get angry with the king. We're not told why. We're just told that they have this assassination plot. And that's just the way evil is. Anger begins to work in a person's heart. Then the thoughts turn into how I can get revenge and bitterness until rage and then murder. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Verse 22, so the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed and both were hanged on a gallows and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai hears the plot to overthrow the king. He reveals it to Esther. The plot stopped. Both guys are hung on the gallows. Major event 
in the plot of the story of Esther that will become very evident later on. But again, in the background, Mordecai, he's just there in the background. I mean, he's responsible for stopping this plot to kill the king. He doesn't get any, attaboys, way to go. He doesn't get any, hey, thanks for saving my life. You know, there's a saying, be it pessimistic, but the saying goes, no good deed ever goes unpunished. It's a, a sarcastic way of saying any act of kindness you'll do eventually backfires on those who do them. I prefer what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 4, your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Mordecai might have thought, man, I just saved the king's life and nothing. I mean, the, 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 what's going on? But you see, God sees the big picture. God is moving and he's working through the circumstances and events that oftentimes we can't see until we have hindsight. Because what we will see is, is God through His sovereignty is directing all these events towards a specific purpose. You know, whether it's crushing blows that drive us to our knees or, or joyous triumphs that, that causes our heart to rejoice, God is working in all situations. God doesn't get frustrated, doesn't scratch His head. He's going, oh, there's this pandemic going on. There's this, this virus happening. I don't know what we're going to do. All the nations of the world. I mean, it's going to be, God doesn't do that. God is in control. And we need to keep that in our minds. God is working in His plan and purpose even in our courts of ungodly rulers or our government. When they make unfair decisions, when things aren't going the way we think they should go, God is always at work. His ways are different than ours. Don't panic. Trust God. Although invisible, God remains invincible. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll direct our path. I want to close by sharing this. I, you know, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Marty Getz. And for those of you that have been around for a while, uh, you may have heard him. This was uh, many years ago when I first heard Marty. He is a, uh, a completed Jew. He came to the Lord uh, uh, when he was young. and, and uh, But he, God has gifted him with a voice that would just blow your mind. I mean, it's just, when I hear him, and, and he'll sing some songs in, 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 uh, in, in Hebrew, and, and it's just, just beautiful. And I picture David on a hill someplace, you know, singing when I hear Marty, Marty sing. Well, Marty has a daughter who has just as beautiful voices as Marty does, and, and, uh, and, and uh, seeing what's going on in this world, and seeing with the, the Feast of Purim, they decided to post this, this little video on Facebook. And I saw it this morning. I thought, man, you guys will be blessed by it. So I'm going to have a Joey show it and, and get it hooked up and hopefully it'll work out okay.